Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In today's podcast episode, I talk with Andres Konstantinidis, the founder and CEO of Tiny Bytes, a remote-first game studio. Andres has built his game studio as a remote company all the way from the founding days, which happened almost 10 years ago. In this discussion, we talk about creating quality games with a remote team, but still keeping up a high velocity and how to make product decisions on continuing a game that is still unsure in its success. And what Andres would do differently if he would go back to the early days of his company. The dilemma at the heart of mobile gaming. Monetizing your great work while keeping gamers engaged and not distracted by intrusive ads. Well, our partners on this podcast have a very clever solution. Audiomob delivers in-game audio ads so that game developers can monetize their players without interrupting gameplay. Audio ads are better at retaining happy gamers than video ads and can actually work alongside video ads too. This is all the while having much higher CPMs than banner ads, up to 600% higher. AudioMob's Unity plugin is simple to set up. It can take just minutes, allowing complete privacy control, and you can even reward players for extra gratification. Simple, clever, and rewarding. Go to audiomob.com for details and to speak to the team. All right, we're recording. Hi, Andres. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Joachim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure thing. This is going to be a really good discussion about your game studio founder journey. Uh, A lot of interesting moments there for sure to share with people. So thanks a lot for coming on the show. Very glad to be here. I'm a a big fan of the show, as you know. Really happy. It's great to hear. I'm going to kick things off. Can you, in two minutes, share your origin story and how you made your way into gaming and yeah, sure. I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and I graduated from uh, business administration. And instead of joining the family business, I, I wanted to uh, marry my two interests, uh, creativity and business. So I, I decided to start with the entertainment business and had the chance to work with different companies like Disney and Warner Home Video across multiple business units. I then moved to London and I was working at HBO and uh, this was DVDs and looking after product internationally. Uh, but I really wanted to get into digital because I thought that was that was the future. And, you know, I couldn't alter product that much anyway. So then Blue Mobile approached me to, to run product for them. And this was the Dumbphones era and uh, Glue had big licenses and studios. And I was, you know, suddenly happy to be working alongside producers, programmers, designers. And I feel that I was, could be, you know, molding product. And that made me happy. Then the, you know, iPhone and App Store came out and it changed everything. Then uh, EA Mobile approached me and those were the iPad and first uh, free-to-play days and um, could work again closely with studios around the world. Then EA acquired Playfish and uh, that to me was free-to-play university and I took all those learnings to to mobile. Then I I got proposed to become uh, director of product 
management for uh, Fire Monkeys. Those they were two studios that EA had acquired in in Australia. And one of them, uh, Firemint, uh, the makers of Real Racing and Flight Control, and the other one, Iron Monkeys, uh, who were doing Need for Speed and and Sims amongst others. So that was a, an amazing experience. But then I found out I was going to be uh, a father and wanted to, you know, my, my wife and I wanted to move back to closer to, to, to our families in, in South America. So, you know, opposite to what anyone normal in, in the right mind would do and stick to a stable job and took the chance to become an entrepreneur and take the jump. And uh, I wanted, I thought, you know, this was a great opportunity to create the, the best action games, free-to-play mobile studio uh, in, in Latin America. And um, Tiny Bytes was, was, was born as a remote uh, first company in 2014. The seed was planted in Chile and then it expanded to other parts of the world. Yeah, we, we became pioneers in remote work in gaming industry, kind of a bit by chance, but there was a lot of skepticism about remote work, especially from investors and big publishers. But now we're 26 people in eight different countries around the world. So really happy about the journey. Wow, what an amazing journey. There's so many things to dig into. And I, I want to first go and talk about your days at EA Mobile, working with all those people, for instance, people who went through Playfish. It must have been a, a great working experience for you. So I would, wanted to ask, like, what kind of things from those EA Mobile day, days do you still think about today as valuable lessons learned? Yeah, absolutely. There were many uh, positive things that I, I think we still use today. And, and I, I took from, from that experience, you know, like learning about free-to-play uh, game design and, 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 and best practices to drive retention and monetization, all those techniques, you know, like gacha mechanics and, and stuff like that. Uh, all of that I learned back then. And, you know, also learning how to work with agile methodology, you know, kind of moving fast across different milestones and how that, that loop works. The, the, the whole development process to, to me was, was, you know, quite, quite unique. And it, it was the first time I had an approach to something like that. It was very intense, but I kind of learned to, to, to understand each, each one of those milestones. It was a very analytics-driven approach and, and learning the power of data that, that helped me, you know, take data into action sort of do things that, that have an impact with data that came out of all, all those years, I think. Have a scientific approach, you know, it's a loop that goes, you know, from measuring data to building hypotheses and designing solutions, A-B testing to validate and then correcting or implementing basically that, that we still do these days uh, and it comes from there. And then uh, the power of a great team, you know, seeing that you know, somehow it's, it's like magic, you know, you know, one plus one equals uh, 10 or a hundred. Uh, you never know what's going to come out of a great team. So, so those things I, I really learned from them. Then there were, you know, I, I also like to say not, not in a, a critical way, but things that, you know, I saw that could be improved. Or if I did my own studio one day, I, I wouldn't like to necessarily follow that, that, that path. Uh, and I think it's, it's it's very good to to also have a, a, a different point of view about things. To me, it definitely has a, an impact on productivity and execution speed and decision making. It's like a Gauss belt, you know. Uh, at first, you put more people, and 
and you start seeing good results, but then you pass a certain point and the marginal uh, effects are, are, are decreasing, you know, and uh, sometimes you, you can waste a lot of time in politics and, uh, you know, or centralized decision making is, is, is not it doesn't go very well with speed of, of execution uh, where opposed to having people that a group of people that can just take decisions very fast and don't need to uh, ask around for validation. The whole green lights you know, process for where you have a, a table of execs saying yes or no to product release decisions. That to me, it was not the right way to, to decide. I, I prefer the, the actual players to, to say, you know, we, we like this game or not. And, and, and their vote, you can measure with the data, actually. So if you see them engage, engaging and, and you know, finally, I think there, there some, some of the big companies have a big IP dependency and inability to, to, to let creativity flow, basically. So when, when you have to make sure you hit expectations from, from players on a big brand, you know, it's, it becomes harder to, to prototype and quickly test new IP and do open beta testing. And also you're too dependent on the power of those brands to bring those users to scale with the, with user acquisition because they're mostly leveraging on, on big brands and cross promotion to, to, to drive organic. So UA was sometimes minimized. But again, those were, I think it's ability to turn those not so good aspects into things that I would uh, like to improve one day. Yeah. Uh, so many interesting things there. I wanted to talk about the way that you've set up the company now. Uh, you've been a remote game studio ever since you founded the company. And this all happened like several years before we had the pandemic. What have been your top three learnings from running a remote games company? I have to say there, there are some things where I'm not advising for uh, what I call fake remote or hybrid remote doesn't work really because you know in, in a hybrid remote where you still have offices in different parts of the world and you kind of tell people well you, you can work remotely from home but you know, or wherever you want but you need to come to the office once or twice um, a week it still anchors people in this place uh, to a location they can't really move far away and if they want to relocate from one place to the other it would be places where that company has offices that tends to for companies to only recruit in a radius where they have offices nearby instead of going wherever people are that is a limitation i'm not too convinced it, it works and then remote work needs to fit with your culture it's something that i haven't seen much but people talking about this and it's for example in our case we give a lot of autonomy we really value that and we're against micromanagement so it's all built on trust and transparency we share a lot of information that everyone in the company has the same level of access to information and and you need flexibility we work by goals and not by hours and it's a flat structure and it's like a network of people talking to each other in different parts of the world instead of depending on a centralized point for decision making if you don't have all of that remote, I don't think it will work as well. So sometimes I, I really suggest that people over communicate and don't assume that the other person is, is seeing or thinking the same thing. So in a remote company, you need to over communicate sometimes. And finally, I would say it's not about quantity of time. It's about quality. It's like a long distance friendship analogy. You meet a friend 
uh, a few times a year. That's what we do. And, and, and the, the times that we, we meet each other in person, they're very intense. They're you know, very substantial. Th- those are instances to play, do team building activities, talk about life, talk about the future of the company and the games, what we want, what we want to achieve collectively, where should we be heading towards and, and bring new ideas and, and talk about company strategy and vision. That's what we call quality times. It's about team, team bonding and people getting to know more about each other and, and creating a stronger link. We do uh, many of those. We, we did those before the pandemics and and then we now are coming back to it we do meet meetups in santiago and buenos aires i just came back from one in madrid and it was great and the next one will be gamescom have you ever like in the toughest moments thought about oh we should have done it like a local studio where everybody is in the office has that ever like come to your mind Yes, in the beginning, it was very hard. There, there was a lot of skepticism from investors and publishers not to be able to see where the, the people were working. And I think some people have that need to, to control and supervise. Mm-hmm. And we found ourselves actually sometimes embarrassed to say it, but we had to hide it sometimes. So we had a, a news channel making a coverage of our studio and we had to call everyone and say can you please bring your laptop and, and, and come over and let's act as we were working together all this time in the same place because the people just wouldn't understand it they think it's very hard to to give that level of flexibility so it wasn't very cool or glamorous back then yeah i, I can understand for sure another question about building the company What have been some tough situations that you've had your, with your company and how did you deal with those situations? We definitely had lots of those. We pivoted product strategy at least three times. I have to say beforehand, people sometimes believe that entrepreneurs need to be resilient and just keep going and stumbling. Don't stumble with the same rock twice. I would say you have to understand pivoting is about learning from a tough experience and knowing how to change. So our first game, for example, Battle of Toys, it was 12 months to, to develop and, and launch. It was too long for me. It was the first game. It lacked a clear positioning, target positioning strategy, lack of social features. Like, for example, all of our games now have social at its core, and it takes three to four months to develop our new games. And all of them have a very clear audience positioning, and, and we're doing UA testing and marketing assets testing as soon as it's as those games are in early prototyping stage. People don't know this, but end of 2014, early 2015, where we're starting to do hyper-casual games. And we realized that those games were very superficial in terms of players were having fun the first few days and then they would drop them. And it would require sort of a, a model of a, a publisher instead of a developer to, to scale. Where if you, if you were a publisher, you would have hundreds of developers turning around games in, in a week or so. But we learned a lot about fast prototyping and lean that was the foundation to fail fast uh, is to learn fast to us so to put the games in the hands of players as soon as possible and start measuring during the pandemics we had six new games in open beta five of them came out in a time span of seven months so that speed of execution in a which is kind of weird in a like mid-core or hardcore gaming company came back from those hyper casual games we did crazy things also like Then we pivoted to like Bitcoin positive games and we're giving Bitcoin when it was trading at 
550, 600, and you know, it was scaling, but suddenly Google decided that wasn't good and they were going to shut us down if we didn't stop it. So because the, the revenue was coming from ad monetization, we learned a lot about ad monetization and backend. So, you know, managing backend, the economies, the security measures, and we were turning around many of those games and we learned about reskinning. There's lots of things that those games had in, in common that we could reutilize from one game to the other. So I would say all in all, all those lessons were incorporated somehow to our most successful games later on. We had to go through those failures to learn all the things we, we brought to our new games. It's like Steve Jobs would say, you can only connect the dots looking back. Yeah, so true. <laughs> like you're always like in the weeds of thinking about the idea that you're going to pursue next, but you never have clarity if it's going to work until later, <laughs> like before, after it happened. Yeah, so true. Can you talk about the the big learnings on how small studios can build these kind of quality games, but also keep the velocity very high? Like you were talking about the quality there, but how do you eliminate things that aren't needed and then create a working style that helps this velocity and sustains quality still? I think for us, it starts with the market, with looking at the market and other references, seeing what works and what doesn't, reading you know, future competitors' reviews and looking at what users are asking for, why are they succeeding and why are they failing. Instead of inventive innovation, like reinventing the wheel, we call it incremental innovation, like doing 10x on two or three things that we, where we know and we can see that we can be like 10 times better than another game in that same vertical. But also at the same time, it has to fit the, the, the team's skills and what they're to build. So it's finding a right match between those. So what is working in the market and what they can do and what they like to do. So basically we define the metrics to validate first. Okay, so what do we need to measure to know that we are doing just fine. And what are the, the metrics that will help us determine if that game will ultimately become scalable in, in the future? So our approach, we call it throw many dice at once. You know, the the, the more you, you dice as you throw at the market, the, the more chances of getting a, a winning dice. And we like to compare games in a similar period of time also because the market changes very fast. It's very different from, for example, the Supercell soft launch approach where you have one or even two years you know, in soft launch and then decide to kill or, or globally launch. We do those three to four initial months of development and then we hit open beta and then we, we go for three, four extra months in live ops. We A-B test, we update, we measure things like CPI as soon as possible. We start making LTV projections. But for that, we only need like 15 days or so of, of features and, and content to make a, a decision. We, we can see it like at, at that time. So all of the content and features that would come day 15 to day 30, day 60, we, we have all, everything that we need just there. And then we want to validate as soon as possible. And believe me, there are many surprises in, in the way. You can find positive signs and that come from the least expected places and the other way around. So we really don't want to wait too long for, for those surprises to start surfacing. Once we know the, the metrics that we want to hit, we define what we call the minimal viable product and we start listing the must-have features. 
and separate them from the nice to have features and, and content. So we try to prioritize with high KPI impact at lowest complexity and lowest time required. Those uh, features go first and, and everything else is disposable and, and not needed at, at that stage. Then we have all the features and content that are needed to measure what we need to validate. We usually have two or three small teams also working in parallel. So for us, a small team, there are like probes that we can send to the universe and find signals. They're like made of one programmer and one artist. Uh, that's all we need because they're generalists and they can do design as well. And so if initial results are good, then we will definitely add more resources to, to that project. The way we did it just recently is just choose the best one. One of those six games is in soft launch and will globally launch later this year. And we and we look at the game that has the best chances of becoming ROI positive, where the CPI and LTV gap is the smallest. And that requires looking at many, many metrics. Got it. Man, I, I wanted to ask a, a follow-up question on this, which I think is, is quite an important one. Even though your existing team is on board with this kind of velocity emphasis, how do you bring in new hires and how do you bring them up to speed with how you want to make games? We kind of call ourselves the, the Spartan Phalanx for many reasons. We, we look for people that are just great, just brilliant, technically speaking, or in their expertise, uh, the skills that they have. And uh, we, we look for people everywhere. And we obviously do an interview and we get to ask many questions. But to us, asking for a test is, is very important. And everyone at Tiny Bytes has joined after completing a test. The test itself is designed by the team and the evaluation criteria is defined by the team as well. So basically candidates would complete the test and we would come back with feedback across different variables. And it's a learning experience for them because they know that if they improve something, they have more chances of joining and our doors are always open. So they can take the test again and we can see the, the, the improvement. And we actually value a lot if they want to go for a, a next iteration and, and improve. That's a good sign uh, of self-improvement and, and motivation and drive. The test is a great way to predict how the person will perform in the team. And we usually just select the best results, but also the people that match everything else that we see about their experience and how they communicate and it, it has to make sense and we start giving them like smaller areas of, of the game and then they start increasing the area of, of influence and and responsibility quite fast you know we have a, an onboarding process and, and make sure that they understand the culture of, of of the company and where to find everything they, they know why we're trying to do what we're trying to do they get up to speed in quite amazing short amount of time yeah really good stuff i want to talk about the, the product owner role or sometimes called a executive producer or a, or a product manager what are some characteristics of a great product owner in gaming that you've seen? To me, um, a great product manager, having been one, um, not a great product manager necessarily, but having been a product manager is, is the combination of vision, being goal-driven and being a good leader. But first of all, I would start with thinking first of the structure that you want to have. So do you want to have a, a standalone product manager and that person sole responsibility is to centralize decisions 
or to have someone that is already in the team, it could be, I don't know, a pro programmer or artist or even a community manager that could put on the hat of a product owner and they do their own work, but they also think of the vision and where they want to take the, the game towards and between all work out the schedule that they want to execute. So I, I would think about that structure. There's no right answer, but it can affect the decision-making process, definitely. But in terms of skills, I would say having the ability to, to clearly communicate what they want to achieve and why they want to achieve it. And the, the, the person must have accountability, the, the ability to actually do what they say they will do. And, and to ask the right questions, you know, to, to the analysts, for example, be able to design a core game loop in a, in a blanket, you know, and show it to the game designer. Hey, hey, I'm thinking something like this, you know, to have a, a, a strategy to, to improve LTV via retention or monetization, to ask the, the right questions, which are the, the most important and urgent aspects in, in the project and, and to look at the community and be able to understand it and try to find a win-win, a compromise between the player needs and, and the developer needs also. And then I would say finally, to us, it's not like passion breeds success. It's kind of the other way around. Success breeds passion. People, I think, they put a lot of passion in, in the beginning, and then when they don't see results, they become frustrated. But if they remove the emotional aspect out of it, and, and they can try to think in a very objective way and do what is needed, and, and if that brings success, they will put more passion into it, and it's a, then you have a great loop there. And for that, you need the capacity to understand the, the weaknesses and the strengths of your own game, the opportunities and the threats everything you have to be honest about your own game and you know never fall in love with your products what we usually say let your your product show you love first and with, with strong metrics before you give it back your your passion that's a really good way to think about it yeah like you've had a lot of success now with the massive warfare basically the game that made your mark now in the app store i, I wanted to ask about decision making in gaming how do you know what is the right thing to do? Like when you're at that point where you have, have the KPIs, you're giving the love now, doing and focusing and doubling down on that game or moving on to a new, new game. You know, you have the game that's showing promise. Is it enough? Or do we do the new game? How do you make that decision? Yeah, that's very difficult. Massive Warfare wasn't an overnight success. For example, the latest period in which we started testing new games, we didn't have a lot of certainty. And, and fortunately, by the time we had released all the new six games, Massive Warfare ended showing strong signs of scalability. So we had a, a good problem in our hands. So to us, it had to do with looking back at players that we had acquired years before and and see that they kept spending and then we decided oh this is great it's a long break even window but we can reduce it it could ultimately become roi positive and and having that faith and that confidence then we we decided okay well so we'll continue putting resources into massive warfare and then we'll put uh, more resources into our new game currently a soft launch uh, last war which is the best one out of that the, the pack of the new games so i would say the lesson there is always have a plan if this doesn't work then you at least have this 
this other option. But then it's also about looking at the signs of what moves the needle. It's very hard to expect to be ROI positive in just a couple of months after releasing an open beta. You have to to see if the team is, is... trying to improve LTV and they put together a plan, they execute the plan and the, the new feature doesn't make the game ROI positive straight away, which is the, by the way, the, the most probable scenario, but it does get the LTV closer to where it should be. That is a very good sign. You should continue down that line. It can take time at see, for example, instead of seeing a flat curve, it, it keeps growing slightly every day. There's signs of life. There's light at the end of the tunnels. It just needs more time. The industry, I'd say, is very benchmark-driven. I've heard this a lot of times. Anything below 40% day one retention gets killed straight away. But there are many games with 25% day one retention. And they're doing like three, four, five million dollars a month. That's because there are other aspects, other metrics that we should look at holistically and you know to to de- determine if the the game can scale or not and they have to do with engagement and long term retention and monetization even if we didn't have the hit the, the, the goal straight away we decided to invest and, and build our own analytics and UA team anyways. And we just kept pushing. It takes time, but we, we kind of did it in the, the end. And there were lots of naysayers in the beginning when they saw our day one retention and they would say, you, you will never scale this game ever. We just, you know, don't listen to them, you know, because we're seeing other aspects that they are not. And we, no one knows our game better than we do. Those big game publishers or advertising agencies, they can affect your confidence. You know best is the, is the way. And just persist. Sometimes when I look at the chart of yearly revenue across those eight and a half years, I look at the first five years and I, I say to myself, anyone in their right mind would have quit their job during the first few years. I think what, what drove me was have, have faith in the team, just guide them, hopefully to, so that they don't make the same mistakes that I did, but sometimes learn from their own mistakes uh, because th- those will be the, the most profound lessons that they will learn. Yeah, yeah, excellent stuff. Before going to the final questions, I wanted to ask you this interesting question. If, if there could be something that you would do differently by going back to the beginning of the company, like what, what could that one change be? Yeah, I, I sometimes think about it. I would say, look, we really started from a very low level, financially speaking, building a company in Latin America. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to raise. It was very hard to raise, let's say, north of half a million dollars in your first round at a decent valuation back then. And I was coming from EA and, you know, had this reality distortion field that, you know, I, I, I still would have the, the big EA brands in, in my shoulders. And I felt like a superhero, you know, and, and our first game was a failure. Battle of Toys had awards and got millions of downloads and it got featuring in the app stores, but financially speaking, it was, it was a big flop. So I saw myself suddenly earning a fraction of my previous salary and I had to do lots of personal and family sacrifices. But then took a, a toll on, on me and my loved ones. And the, the, the budget was too tight. And it, in the beginning, it affected our capacity to hire senior people. 
and, and we were too cautious about uh, spending money in, in the beginning because we felt that, oh, we do this a wrong move and we'll die. We, we had seen it in many game developers that, that they were spending it all in their first game. And that first game always has 99% chances of failing, even if you come from big companies. We were trying to survive, basically. But then I have to say that that was some sort of blessing in disguise. Because it actually made us what we are today. If that limitation of resources took us to the lean startup methodology, how can we, you know, in that same amount of time, how can we try to hit the market with more games and see if one of them succeeds? It's a statistical thing. And I think also with more, the more games you release, the team becomes more experienced and therefore the higher chances of succeeding. So, so I'd say that a financially strong company and that is less investment dependent, our cash in the bank was double what uh, we raised in, in terms of investment rounds. And that to me was a very healthy financial situation in the end. From those hard early days, remote happened out of need really because you know i was in the beginning pouring a lot of my own money to make the the business survive and just you know i only had money to pay salaries and to to make our first game so i didn't have money to to pay for fancy off stuff like that and then we realized well actually this is working quite well and you know just one country wouldn't suffice when it comes to finding people with the free-to-play skills and experience like think of a game analysts with experience in mobile gaming free to play there's only a bunch of them in, in in one country sometimes so just we decided to go where the talent is yeah and the world has caught up with what you were doing now it's like normal hey Anders, final questions for you what is your favorite book and why well i i, I read lots of book on entrepreneurship and and business. One of my favorite ones is definitely Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. It's still a hard one to beat. I know there's lots of people out there that have read it already, but it, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's a classic. It's about making team creativity flow and harnessing it and fostering it and, and protecting a, that is about creativity and understanding how to drive the creative process with transparency and talking about the, the good and the tough things as well, having honesty. I, I, I really think everyone in, in this business should should read it at least once. And then I, I particularly like a book by Richard Branson, which is uh, Screw It, Let's Do It. It's about taking risks. You can't make fully informed decisions. Sometimes you need to follow your gut and, and your instincts. And you definitely in this business, you can't grow unless you take risks. So that's mm. another one I like. Yeah. Man on Creativity Inc. I remember I read it when it came out, out in 2014. And then I reread it last year. And I, I think mm. this kind of like time distance between re rereading helps a lot because then you've absorbed already a lot of information or experience from life. And then you can reflect again on what you're reading about, what Catmull is talking about back to what you're thinking and then like all of a sudden you're, you're putting pieces together that you didn't know how to do in like earlier so it it is such a good book for sure absolutely do you have a story that shaped you in how you approach your work today yeah this is a funny one in in back in 2000 i think 2015 or 2016 around that time we were doing the hyper casual games but we weren't really 
passionate about the, the, those games. And I could see it in the team. They felt that this was too superficial. We really wanted to establish a long-term relationship with players and, and build a community. Back then, we were in a great financial shape and uh, our cash in the bank was was quite low. But the, a massive warfare prequel project, it's, it's not the same as the one we, we have today, but a top-down shooter game was around in a first prototype, first playable stage, but it was already looking very promising. Although we knew back then it was going to be a, a huge scope project, too big. And we only had four people back then, <laughs> I think. The team really loved the, the project though, even if it was uh, too ambitious. So I was coming back from Mix in Canada, in Montreal, and was going from, you know, then we made a stop in, in Atlanta and I was going back to, to Santiago, Chile in the, in the plane. And we were all most game developers in that uh, plane. And I was sitting in the left-hand side, just next to the left wing of the plane. And it was like the most frightening, heavy storm I, I had seen. There were, we, we had seen before boarding that there were like hurricanes in the, the Gulf <laughs> of Mexico. Like, and it was like, it, it was, plane was moving like in a very scary way. And I was suddenly... I was looking you know, throughout the, the window and I saw a, a lightning hit the left wing and suddenly boom, like an explosion and the engine stopped and it all went like from white to, to, to dark and people were scaring. The, the, the captain wasn't saying anything and we were just flying without engines and I, I wasn't aware what would happen. We were quite scared for a few minutes there and I had a developer sitting next to me and he was like sweating in like fear and I told him look if we survive this and we get to go back the games we make they must be great must be worth our lives and we finally made it back (laughs) and you know I, I came back with a completely new approach to to work and life and I thought we have to give it all we got. I spoke with the team and I asked them, what game do you want to make? And they said, we want to drop those hyper-casual games and do Massive Warfare. And I said, let's do it. Do it like it's the last chance we have. Take courage and, and make it count. You know, make big bets. Again, we were only five people, but we wanted to do something that was worth failing for and that we could remember it and, and be proud of doing it. You know, and nowadays the game is in top 30 crossing and in action in Google Play. And it's even above some some big brands in the category, um, amazed by the power of in a small team with limited resources, a team that is uh, made of highly talented generalists and curious people that just want to succeed. It's uh, amazing. Like, yeah, just thinking about not being here and talking about making games, but you made it. And then the news showed that you can actually make great products. Amazing story, man. Thank you. So last question. If there's entrepreneurs or people who want to, you know, start a game studio, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you and maybe have a chat? Sure. I'd love to have a chat and they can reach me via email. It's ac at tiny hyphen bytes.com that's my external email or they can reach out via linkedin as well i'll be happy to to come back and answer 
always looking forward to talking with entrepreneurs and you know people in the industry that, that want to go for a similar experience. Glad to contribute. Yeah, it's a great experience for sure. All right. Hey, Andres, this was so much fun. So many things to talk about and think about from here. So uh, I want to thank you for, for coming on the show. Thanks to you, Joachim. I really appreciate it and love the chance to, to contribute back. So glad. take care, man. See you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you move on, please remember to follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is live. See you next week. Bye-bye.